together. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of John. We were in John chapter 12 a few moments ago. We'll be in John 18. John chapter 18. We'll read the first 11 verses as we have a meditation that is uh, appropriate for the observance of the Lord's table. I've been speaking on Christ in Gethsemane for several months when we observe the Lord's table once a month. I think all of the children have left. I saw them get up and go, but if any children plan to go to children's church and you didn't know you could do that, please feel free to get up and, and leave even as I'm talking. But for the last four times that we've observed the Lord's table, at least when I have spoken, we've been meditating on Christ in Gethsemane. I've noted several times, and I'll say it again before we read the verses here. The word Gethsemane, I hope you know what it means by now. It literally means olive press, olive press. If you know anything about Bible customs and Bible lands and Bible times, you know how important olive oil was for many, many reasons. But the product, olive oil, was the result of the exertion of great pressure upon the casing of the olive. Maybe you've seen an olive press. My wife and I and several of us that went to Israel, we saw one. What a fit name for the place where Jesus was pressed above measure with the weight of your sin and mine. And he sweat, not olive oil, but great drops of blood. Yes, we think of Calvary, especially when we have the Lord's table, and we ought to. We think of Golgotha and the suffering and the bloodletting and the anguish and the torture on the cross. That's where Jesus shed his blood. But may I remind you, Gethsemane is where the real crisis took place. That's where the battle was won. And Golgotha was just the unraveling. I say it without any hesitation or apology. We're on holy ground this morning. Sometimes it's appropriate to shout. Sometimes it's appropriate to be quiet and just say, God, speak to my heart. Take off the shoes of your minds. We're on holy ground. We read in verse 1 of chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither or there with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and saith unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, What seek ye? And they said the second time, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. 
If therefore ye seek me, let these his disciples go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? We'll stop there. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not include what John says here, but of course John doesn't include some of the things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke say. John doesn't talk about the suffering in the garden. He has a very specific purpose for the writing of his book, and he states that purpose in chapter 20, verse 31. He wants to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life through his name. And that's why all the miracles that are shared, which were not all the miracles Jesus performed, all the sermons he preached, far from all of them that he actually preached, the discourses that are included here are for specific purposes, even the prayers that are shared. And we have the high priestly prayer in chapter 17. As valuable and as, in, as instructive as what is included in the Gospel of John, equally val valuable is that which is excluded. John says nothing about the agony of Jesus in the garden. All he mentions is the cup in verse 11. But the unique contribution of John's gospel to this story of Jesus' arrest in the garden is to relate how that Christ, and I hope you see this in a new way you will never forget, Christ in a weakened condition physically is still able to rule, work miracles. This motley band of men and officers dispatched from the Jewish hierarchy to take Jesus were rendered impotent and speechless. The power of the weakened Christ. I say it again, don't miss it. Jesus was in charge here. In charge of his own arrest, his own suffering, his own death. Yes, Jesus ruled from the cross even as he now rules from the throne. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what awaited him. And yet the Bible says twice, he still went forth to them. He was no victim. He was not deceived. He was not trapped. We don't need to feel sorry for Jesus, but I'm sure glad he feels sorry for us. And just as the Holy Spirit superintended John's choosing of writing about miracles that prove Jesus was the Christ. So we have two miracles I'd like to focus on here. You could say there were three, but the two I'll hone in on because they have a similar purpose. Before he left the garden that night, Jesus worked these miracles, proving he was a victor and not a victim. The first one shows the miraculous power of Christ's word. Well, we've talked about that already, the power of the Word of Christ. Verses 4 through 6 tell us, as we read a moment ago, how a large band of officers 
composed perhaps of some Roman soldiers, but primarily of the Jewish temple police, accompanied Judas, who was the deceiver, the traitor, accompanied him with lanterns and torches and weapons to arrest Jesus. Now, some of us have an idea that this was just a ragtag, ragtag little band. No, folks, this was several hundred soldiers. The word for men there is spira. In the Greek, it designates a Roman cohort, which was 600 men. At any rate, Matthew said it was a great multitude. Think about that. You would have thought Jesus of Nazareth must have been some desperado, some dangerous armed criminal surrounded by a fearless group of guerrillas, fearless guerrillas, not just 12, 11, but this time trembling disciples. We're talking about professional soldiers armed to the teeth. That's the scene here. And they reach Jesus. They expect that they're going to have to find him hiding in some nook and cranny in the darkness. Imagine their surprise when no, he goes out to them. He went forth unto them, walking boldly. What courage, what boldness. And yet just a few hours before, if not minutes, he had been sweating great drops of blood and was so weak that a, an angel had to strengthen him from heaven. And twice now he asks the men that are coming to arrest him, Whom seek ye? In verses 4 and verses 7. And they answer him both times, Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't it interesting that there was no recognition on their part that he was the Messiah, that he was Christ, not even a rabbi. No, their orders were to get Jesus of Nazareth and don't let him get away. They could have cared less who he was. Please note Jesus' answer. I am. The word he is in italics. That's supplied by the translators. I am. The great I am of the Old Testament. He wasn't just saying, I am the one you're looking for. He was saying, I am the I am that appeared to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. The eternal, self-existent God. Personal. Covenant. God. The Jews among this band would certainly have recognized that name and that claim. Would you look at the helplessness of the mob here? What a background, what a backdrop for this miracle. Verse 6, as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, he is in italics, they went backward and fell to the ground. It could not have been that they were just merely startled at him for what he said because all the Roman soldiers, again, they couldn't have cared less they all fell like slaked lime before Jesus because of the power of his word. We don't know how long they stayed on the ground. The Bible doesn't tell us. Get the picture here. There he stands, a solitary, unarmed man, greatly weakened from what he had just been through. And they are an army, equipped, armed to the teeth, going to take this unarmed carpenter and this peasant teacher he simply speaks his name and they collapse 
in a pile. Wow. I ask you, who's the one that has the power here? The Bible says very specifically that Judas stood with them. Isn't that amazing? Why is that mentioned? It kind of breaks the flow of the action here. It looks kind of incidental. Because God wanted them and us to know that Judas had no power at all either. Jesus spoke a word and down they fell. Judas did too. Absolutely powerless. Beloved, let us take courage and comfort from this miracle. I'm here to remind you this morning, and I know you know this, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against Christ's church, the true church. There's a lot of phoniness in the professing church. I'm not worried about hate crimes legislation and its impact on the church. I'm really not all that worried about the present cancel culture, as shocking as it is, and the all-out attack on free speech in America. I'm not worried that I need to get out there and help keep the environment safe for evangelism. I serve the one who's from whose lips one little word, as we sang a while ago, shall fell him, shall fell the devil. The word of God is not bound. The statute of limitations has not run out on the power of the Holy Spirit. All Jesus spoke was one word. Can you imagine what would have been the effect if he put forth the full force of his strength? 600 men or more would have fallen into the grave and into hell. Just as God did that in the Old Testament with the children of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, one word threw them to the ground, another word would have hurled them into the pit. But our Savior did not speak it. You know why? He did not come to destroy, but to save. What great irony we find here in comparison to just an hour or two earlier. There in the Garden of Gethsemane among those gnarled olive trees that can endure for 2,000 years, probably there were some shoots actually that witnessed the suffering of Jesus that are trees now. Jesus was in such a state of agony that he could not stand, the Bible says. He fell to the ground. But now his enemies are on the ground and he's standing. They had no power whatsoever to take him. What an about face. What a turnaround. Now, I remind you, this is the same Christ that we serve. He's the one who's on the throne as the glorified lamb right now. It matters not how hostile and united are the forces of men. Just one word from Christ will vanquish his enemies. Let us take heart as we plead in prayer for victory and success in the work of the ministry. There you see the, the mob, the hostility, the mob. I want you to see, secondly, the hardness of Judas. Judas is quite a character study. Maybe you've made a study of him. I encourage you to do that. As I just pointed out, Judas is mentioned in verse 5. He had left the upper room. He had gone to the chief priests. 
and offered to betray Jesus into their hands. He knew that they hated him. They wanted to kill him, but they were afraid of the multitudes. He had gained such popularity after raising Lazarus from the dead. They had to be careful how they did it. So they agreed to give Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus into their hands. That's a paltry sum of money equivalent to $20 or less in today's currency. Quite a bargain, huh? Wicked men may pay lip service to Jesus, but really they place no value on him. He was despised. The prophet Isaiah said, and we esteemed him not. Oh, there are people that uh, kiss Jesus as Judas did, but they kiss him in a different way today. They pay lip service to him. They call him a great teacher. They say, well, uh, what a great ethical code he gave us. What a tremendous moral example. What an advocate of nonviolence, the best the world has ever seen. But they stopped short of falling at his feet and calling him God and Lord. They esteem him not. I'm amazed how hardened some unconverted men can become. Judas typifies that. Now, remind you, Judas went on short-term preaching missions. He was with the 12. He was with the 70. He preached. He did miracles. He cast out demons. And then he was possessed with the devil himself. He was likable. He was trusted. He was the treasure of the band. He was not just some misguided zealot who was trying to ride Jesus' coattails into the kingdom power over the Romans. But the Bible says he was a devil. Satan entered into him. Jesus said it had been better for him if he would never been born. He was vile. He was the very incarnation of hypocrisy. He had absolutely no second thoughts, no pangs of conviction, even when Jesus addressed him as friend, literally comrade. He didn't say villain. He didn't say traitor. He said friend. If Judas had had any milk of human kindness in his breast, he would have wilted on the spot with that. But no, he was the devil. You don't know how hard your heart can become when you say no to Christ. He goes up to Jesus and he kisses him. This was a, the, sign, the sign agreed on beforehand for identifying the one to be seized. And please, I'm being reverent here and understand my motive. This was not a one-time peck on the cheek. The Greek construction suggests that he kissed Jesus profusely and repeatedly. Spurgeon points out that Slaves will kiss the foot. Inferiors will kiss the hand. But Jesus kissed, or Judas kissed Jesus' face. It made the national, international news recently when a, the football association, the soccer association, the international association fired a chief official for kissing a female Spanish player on the mouth after a win at the World Cup. Major news. I ask you, how could 
Judas linger and repeatedly kiss Jesus Christ and then remain there. He was among those who fell backward with the rest of the band at the force of Jesus' word, and then somehow he got right back up and coolly consummated his dastardly deed. How he could do that defies all logic and all reason, but such is the insanity of unconverted men. They're not good people. Oh, yes, Jesus loves them, but there's none good, no, not one. May I just say, before we leave this point, let's not marvel when we encounter men's resistance to the gospel. We ought to marvel when somebody is open to receive it, because it takes a miracle of God through the Holy Spirit for that to be the case. 20 or 30 years of being totally irreligious, 20 or 30 years of being without the influence of the Word of God, never darkening the door of a Bible-preaching church, can make a man's heart as hard as the proverbial nether millstone. Oh, the willful blindness of men. Remember Judas with the backing of several hundred armed men, temple police, who were there keeping order because of the hundreds of thousands of people that had inflated the population of Jerusalem at the Passover time. Judas in that circumstance had no power against the Son of God. He was just a pawn in the hands of God to do what his sovereign counsel had already determined to do. I hope we have a new appreciation for the power of the Word of Christ. But I hope we even have a greater appreciation for the second miracle and what it should mean to us, that is the merciful protection of Christ's own. I believe it was nothing less than a miracle here, though we often miss this, that in the face of this intimidating force of hundreds of armed men, Jesus' disciples were virtually unarmed. They had two swords among the 11 of them. That wasn't much. They were virtually unarmed and untaken. They were no match for these, this army. Then to further complicate matters, Good old Peter takes out his sword, a small sword, a little dagger probably, and whacks off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus calmly picks it up, puts the ear back, heals it. Nobody makes a move to get Peter or any of the other ten. Here they were like lambs in the midst of wolves, but their master preserved them. This is a miracle. There was amazing power that Jesus' second utterance exerted here when he said, whom do you seek? And when they said, Jesus of Nazareth, he said, if you are seeking me, then let these go their way. What power there was. Because that's exactly what these soldiers did. Several profound thoughts before we take the Lord's table together. I want you to see the selflessness of Jesus Christ he was never concerned about himself. He was constantly thinking of, of his own, of others. Twice he asked, whom do you seek? To, form the, to force the specific answer from the lips of the spokesperson of the band, whoever it was, who answered twice, Jesus of Nazareth. Could I just stop there before I comment on that and ask you, whom are you seeking this morning? Many are seeking the, someone they know not what or who. 
They're seeking happiness. They're seeking meaning to life. They crave peace. They're dying for love. And the only one who can really fulfill all those things is Jesus, but they don't realize that's who they should be seeking. And so Jesus answers and says, if therefore ye seek me, then, that's the implied idea, then let these go their way. This touches on a, a profound principle that I've pointed out before. If you truly seek Jesus, are you listening? If you truly seek Jesus, some other things must go. We've tried to make Jesus so palatable to people. Just be seeker-friendly, just dress up Christianity, make it relevant, <laughs> put some icing on it, entice people, and we're paying a price for that. But if you seek Jesus with all your heart, you'll have to let some things go. These men could not have Jesus unless they let his disciples go. Twice Jesus made them repeat their orders so that from their own mouths they would go on record as stating that they had no right to the disciples. He said, who are you really seeking? They said, Jesus. He asked again, who do you really want? Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus said, okay, let these go. You know, usually when the heart is filled with its own bitterness, when someone is suffering in their own heart and mind, they don't think of others, but not the God-man. What love? What kindness? What sympathy for his overwrought apostles? Especially in view of the fact that these same disciples had so recently failed him in his hour of need, you know, as he came back to them sleeping in the garden, even the triumvirate, the top three, and he said, what could you not watch with me one hour? But he was still thinking of them. He would manifest this same love a few hours later as he hanged upon the cross and the blood drained from his body and the dehydration and the thirst acutely set in. He, he would still focus on the one hanging at his side and speak words of hope and love and forgiveness. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. No one like Jesus, thinking of others to the last. I want you to see the substitution of Christ foreshadowed. Jesus said, if therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Jesus was willing to suffer for them. He was saying, in effect, to the, the, the band to coming to arrest him, do your worst on me, but let these be exempt. Christ was the real object of Satan's hatred, by the way. And he always has been. We see that from the second psalm. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Don't stop there. And against his anointed, the Christ. Satan wants to get rid of Christ. Satan hates Christ. Oh, at Christmas time, we get all sentimental about a little baby in a manger, and the whole world pays lip service to him, but they hate the real Christ. They will not have this man to rule over them. Satan hates the doctrine of blood atonement. He hates any teaching and preaching about Jesus suffering and dying in the place of sinful men. 
And so but Jesus is concerned for his own here, and he says, in effect, you're not going to hurt both me and my people. What tremendous assurance we should draw from that. That God has, because of our faith in Christ, because of what Jesus has done, God has acquitted us. God has justified us. Not merely forgiven us, not just getting us off the hook, if you were to be charged with a crime and had to go into, into court for it and be tried, the words that you would want to hear more than any other words would be the two words, not guilty. But I'm here to remind you that for those of us who are guilty of sin and of crucifying the Son of God, what God does for us because of Jesus' atonement is far more than that. He not only pronounces us not guilty, He declares us positively righteous. That ought to make a backslidden Episcopalian shout. Yes, Jesus suffered for us. He bore our shame. He satisfied a holy, righteous God on our behalf. And now he can tell of the grim reaper, as it were, when he comes for us. Since I died, let these go their way. Oh, hallelujah, death, where is thy sting grave? Where is thy victory? And so I just stop there and ask you, is that your only hope this morning? I talked with a man dying in the hospital this week. He gave me 20 minutes of his time. I asked him, if you were to stand before Jesus, he would ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? And in all sincerity, he was very kind to me. He said, well, my mother taught me that God put us here for a purpose, and that purpose is to do good. And for 20 minutes until the doctors came in and knocked at the door, all I could do was take him to this parable of the publican and the Pharisee and show him how that Jesus declares righteous only those who trust in the blood, the finished work of Christ. But he represents the vast majority of people in America. Oh, they know the story Jesus died. They pay lip service to him. They don't really trust him in his finished work. What's your only hope of heaven today? What's your only hope of acceptance with God? Can you say with the songwriter, I mean, it, it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Don't try to head to it. Don't try to mess it up with your works. You'll do just like Peter did when he started struggling as he went under the water. There's a reason the lifeguards sometimes have to knock people out because they're fighting against themselves when they try to bring them in from the strong current. I want you to see the saying of Christ fulfilled. Notice verse 9 as we go back to John 18. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them which thou gavest me have I lost none? All right, question. Whose saying was that? Where and when was that said? Is this some Old Testament prophecy? Is this something that David said in the Psalms? Kind of sounds like it. Was this a pronouncement of the great evangelical prophet Isaiah many years before? No, and you may be surprised. Jesus is referring to an utterance from his own lips given just a few hours earlier. Wow. 
When he prayed his high priestly prayers recorded in the previous chapter, John 17 and verse 12, those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Oh, don't miss this. Jesus uttered this sentence just a short time before he referred to it here. But it had already been reckoned among inspired scripture. And it had begun to take effect and to be fulfilled. What Jesus had said in, in his prayer, high priestly prayer, wherever it was prayed, some think it was prayed in the garden. The Bible doesn't say it was prayed in the garden. It may have been prayed on the top of the upper room before they went to the garden. But what Jesus said in that great high priestly prayer was just as much the word of God as that which God had spoken by his spirit through holy men of old. It is true that in John chapter 6, verse 39, prospectively Jesus had testified to his disciples and to the Jews following him around the lake after he'd fed 5,000 men plus women and children with just five little barley loaves and two small fishes. They followed him around the lake. They knew a good welfare plan when they saw it. He called their bluff and he gave that great discourse on the bread of life. And before the chapter's over, they're leaving him, as you've heard me say, you could have played checkers on their coattails. They thought they wanted him. No, they didn't. And Jesus said this in verse 39, This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Isn't it amazing that these callous Jews who had come to arrest Jesus like some dangerous desperado did not immediately surround this helpless band of disciples like wolves closing in on trembling stags. That they didn't then hail them all to prison and have them summarily executed. So let's stop and think about that before we close today. If they had done that, and they could have, if God had let them, if they had done that, where would the New Testament church be? What was the, what was the desire of those who sent this band of temple police. They were desperately trying to get witnesses so that they could get Jesus executed. Who better is a witness than Peter and John? What trophies that would have been if they'd come back with Jesus, but they didn't. Jesus spared the eleven. He had great power. Why was he so careful to do that? Why was he so careful to shield his disciples from the, the suffering that he was about to experience, that already started experience, and it was inevitable at this moment? After all, had he not told them when, when they didn't know their own hearts and announced, yeah, we're, we're ready to undergo the same baptism of suffering that you're going to undergo, Jesus? And Jesus said, yeah, you will. There will be a baptism of suffering but not at this time. It didn't happen at this time. I think we need to meditate on that for a few moments. First of all, they were unprepared to suffer. When you examine other portions of Scripture about this up until this time, they did not yet understand the Scriptures that Jesus would die and be raised from the dead. Jesus had said it over and over, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of, of the chief priests and the scribes, 
I'll be condemned, I'll suffer, and I'll die. And I'll be raised the third day. And it just went in one ear and out the other. They didn't get it. And he upbraided them later. He said, oh, fools and slow of heart. Not slow of mind. There wasn't anything inferior about their intelligence. This was a smart group of guys. Oh, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They were slow of heart to believe, and therefore they ended up very sorrowful of heart. They were only babes in Christ. The resurrected Christ had not yet breathed on them the Holy Spirit, as we read in John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, causing them to understand the Scriptures. Something happened when he did that. Something happened when Jesus breathed on those disciples. From that point on, they understood. They got it. They had not yet experienced Pentecost, yet by which they would be qualified to suffer. They were not yet fit to be martyrs. And even if they had been pre prepared to suffer, it would have been unwise at this point to allow them to. Perhaps, among other reasons, because others would likely have thought that they should share in the honor of man's redemption. Isn't it amazing that the only one allowed to suffer with Jesus on the cross were two criminals? Only Jesus could suffer redemptively. And he alone had to tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. But there was a second reason, another reason that Jesus spared his disciples suffering unto death at this time. They were needed, they would be needed as witnesses of his resurrection. Christ's disciples had to be released here, spared, so that they could live to carry the message. As they would later meet after Jesus' resurrection and even after his ascension. In the upper room, as it's related there in Acts chapter 1, the first order of business was to nominate a successor to Judas, and they said, therefore, among all of those who have accompanied us from the baptism of John, even until he was taken from us, must one be ordained to be a witness of his resurrection. So they chose Matthias. Jesus protected them. He procured their safety. They had to be witnesses of his resurrection. Oh, there's more I could say. I wish we had time. But I want to get into the Lord's table and do it meaningfully and not cause people to think about what you've got to do when you leave. But I'm sure I'm speaking to some harassed and distressed people that may well be saved. Maybe you're doubting your salvation because of the things that God has permitted to happen in your life. But can I just say it, and it's not, a, I'm not just repeating a trite saying, but it's true. You are immortal until your work is done. You and I are immortal till our work is done. Jesus proved that here. Jesus suffered in our place that we might be spared. Jesus was bound that we might go free. Jesus drank the bitter cup that you and I might have to quaff only the sweet cordials of his nuptials at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He was bound that we might go free. I want you to remember these words today, even as you partake of the elements. 
If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. The power of Jesus' word. It's the pledge of our protection. <laughs> he was in charge. He was ordering 600 or more soldiers. And they had no choice but to take it. Christ's commands are his enablements. Again, I bring you back to that question. Whom do you seek? Are you seeking Christ or something else? Are you seeking Christ or just what only Christ can give? In America, we're seeking a whole lot of things. Jesus said to a distracted Martha, Martha, you're troubled about many things. One thing is needful. Mary is doing that one thing. May God help us to do what Mary did and sit at the feet of Jesus and learn of him and drink it in. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, what a sweet word you've given to us this morning. Our blessed Savior at his weakest physically was still in charge, able to do miracles, able to silence his critics, able to overpower his enemies, able to save a soul dying at his side. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Would you exercise and put forth that mighty power today and save some trembling, convicted, guilt-ridden sinner. Restore some miserable backslider. And I'm sure there are some under the sound of my voice that probably doubt their salvation. Would you show forth your mighty power to save and to save completely, to protect and to preserve your own and present us faultless before your throne. We pray and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.